Welcome to Bit of Play, your not-so-weekly or not-so-regular dose of video game news and culture. Um, in this case, I am Armin Iqbali. And I am Daniel Rosen. And we're going to be talking about open worlds. In fact, we're basically going to be going over our open worlds primer and talk a bit about some of our favorite open worlds. Yes, uh, specifically some open worlds that don't get a lot of play. We're kind of trying to avoid the Grand Theft Autos and Saints Rose of the World and try open worlds that take kind of a different approach to their openness. Yeah, so let's start off with Super Metroid. That's the first one you have up on the primer. Um, I haven't, I don't, I played a bit of Super Metroid when it first came out, but you've, you've clearly, you know, a lot more about this than I have. What, what makes Super Metroid such a great open world? What makes Super Metroid so super? Yeah. Um, being on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. It's no Super Metroid is interesting because it's, it is sort of the game that invented the Metroidvania concept genre thing. It, it the world is not completely open to you in that you do need a lot of tools to continue progressing. Samus can't open red doors until she has a missile, and she can't open green doors until she has uh, super bombs or something. There, there, there are certain things, but every, every blockage feels very natural. Um, and that sounded like a poop joke. Um, for example, there are areas... You can't really get across these gaps in the, you know, across, like, lava pits until you have the grapple beam, which will let you grapple across the ceiling, and you can't really get through the water until you have a suit that lets you counteract the water's kind of gravity effects. So it was very much these skill-based restrictions. So the world was technically all existed. You, mm-hmm. The only thing preventing you from accessing it was just your own abilities and at it, that and point in the game. And it never quite felt arbitrary. It, it, uh, the thing about Super Metroid that's really special is that it always gives you just enough rope to hang you with. It gives you enough areas to explore with your current tool set until you kind of figure out your way to the next tool, which will let you explore the next kind of set of areas. Um, one of the things I think I point out is that when you go into uh, Marida for the first time, you or you pass through, it's actually a really incredible little moment, you pass through a chamber in, I think in Norfair, you pass through this like glass tube. And when you go through the glass tube, your map changes to a different area because you always have this little map in the corner. And it's this really special usage of that map to tell you, hey, you're in a different part of the world now. And then you come back and you realize like, oh, so obviously this world is A, much bigger than I expected it to be. And B, I can obviously get there somehow. And if you have super bombs that moment, uh, or when you come back with super bombs through that glass tube, you can actually bust that glass tube open and find a different route into Marida than you usually would take. Um, it's all about kind of opening these shortcuts between all these different disparate areas, um, which is something Dark Souls does a lot, which we'll get to in a moment. But um, what, what is really special at Super Metroid is that sort of kind of lonely atmosphere and you kind of becoming the master of this world by gathering skills and becoming better at navigating it and understanding it. Um, it also always teaches you how to explore it kind of in the background, which is really special. It never, what's really special at Super Metroid is it never gives you a tutorial about how to get around. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing that I always felt bad about in, like, Castle, later Castlevania games, where they, it did kind of heavily tutorialize a lot of the skills that you had to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, while Super Metroid did feel a lot more organic, at least from what I remember playing, um... The, I mean, traditionally, it's not what you would traditionally think, though, of an open world in the sense that, like, you can't necessarily, like, I can't just get in a car and drive to right. the other side. Not, I mean, it'd be actually great to see Samus in a car. That'd be, <laughs> That'd be funny. Fun. Well, I'm winning Smash Bros. cart. But <laughs> I think the, I, I think there is a distinction sometimes that has to be between open world and sandbox games. Right. Uh, Super Metroid doesn't really let you do anything like a sandbox style game like Grand Theft Auto, but it does let you really go anywhere in its world to the point where speedruns have sort of become all about getting around as quickly as possible with the least amount of items as possible because then you waste the least amount of time um there's also some like really cool bits of just like coming back the world being so open you can always turn around and go somewhere else 
um, one of the special things about the original Metroid, and Super Metroid does it to an extent too, is that the original Metroid taught you on the very first screen that it is not your standard side-scrolling platformer. Because if you try to go right, you will come up against a wall. You have to go left first to get the, um, to get the uh, what's it called, the warp, morph ball which will then allow you to continue right. You have to reverse the standard orientation of a platformer to continue along its natural progression. And Super Metroid takes that to a crazy, like, dizzying extent, but with these interlocking worlds. Um, it's, it, it, it's really special, and it's kind of this example of early open world done right. It's not by any means the first open world game entirely. That might be River City Ransom as far as I know. Um, but River City Ransom is also kind of a very simple sandbox, whereas Super Metroid is one of the first games that takes an open-world concept and really just nails using it in a different genre. I mean, another aspect of the world is making sure, like, having this really great cohesive atmosphere in there. Um, I, I, the, that's the one thing I, I remember the most from um, playing Super Metroid was kind of like, they did real, a really great job of the sound and visual design in, mm-hmm. in that game. Like yeah, this... the, the music is very minimalist. There's never a lot of... There's never fanfares or anything. There's sometimes an, a song when you get an item, but really most of the time it's just these kind of scary, spooky, low bass lines, with the, which was really taken advantage of what the Super Nintendo could do. They couldn't really have that kind of strong, pronounced bass line and percussion on the NES. The NES was all about arpeggios and kind of crunchy guitars, which is why there's so many great like rock and soundtracks on that system. But uh, Super Nintendo really let them do atmospheric stuff, and also just kind of in that atmospheric storytelling, like the uh, the dead the, the ghost pirate ship, this um, this just like or it's just called the ghost ship rather this empty spaceship you explore that crash landed on the planet tells a story in and of itself without any words just through visual design of this creepy atmosphere and sound design of what you hear going through it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of atmosphere, let's get into Dark Souls because that is like ninety five percent of what that, that game's amazing. But yeah. the, um, I mean, when you first think of a Dark Souls world, especially when you're first exploring it, it's hard to conceive as an open world. But it really does let you get from one place to another, and it really is also in some ways a sandbox game. Yeah, you're, you are limited to the basic things your character can do, but you can kind. Of, there are no. There, it is a sandbox with consequences, unlike Grand Theft Auto. In Grand Theft Auto, you can crash a car and blow up a guy, and you'll be wanted for a couple minutes, but you'll be fine. If you kill an NPC, you can kill any NPC in Dark Souls. They will get mad at you, but if you kill them, they will stay dead. Yeah, you lose that quest. You lose whatever uh, any benefit or cost that that NPC if might you, have given you. If you, which in a really funny kind of like twist, if you kill a, an NPC who was innocent, you develop sin points. You can be pardoned from for your sins by um, I believe his name is Oscar the the pardoner. Yeah. But you can then kill Oscar. Yeah, like it's it's stuff like that that really makes it feel like this. It's not it's not a, it's not really a sandbox, but it, it has all of these elements of continuity between all of the different levels, and you are moving between all these different areas so often mm-hmm. that it feels like there is, despite that, like maybe you won't revisit one area as often as another, but there is a sense of like if you kill this guy, it has consequences much later, an impact the- on the world, yeah. and what's and, and that world is really special because it all interlocks so. Intricately, Dark Souls feels like this tight, compact... The world of Lordran feels like this tight, compact thing where everything leads somewhere else. The very first area you enter, Firelink Shrine, um, which is kind of confusing for the opening char- for, for a first-time player because you can go up the stairs and you will end up in the Undead Burg. You can go down the stairs and end up in the Catacombs, or you can go down the elevator and you can end up in New Londo Ruins, which is a 
which both New on the Ruins and the Catacombs are way late game areas. Yeah, yeah. Like I remember just directly wandering in there and stumbling into a dragon, and then like nearly getting all of my health wiped out in one hit. And like, mm-hmm. okay, I need to get out of here right now. And you know, what? I love the ability. I love that you can do that. There's like there's so few games, and this is where actually I, I kind of dislike Skyrim is because because they go out and deliberately level balance the entire world. It doesn't feel like. each area doesn't really have presence in a game mechanical way. Mm -hmm. You never feel like you're progressing, but you also never feel like the world is like, hey, this is a, this area is different in some way, not just because of its look, but because of the things that inhabit it and the strategies it takes to get through it. Exactly. Um, and, I mean, you can just watch how the areas interconnect, right? Like, the my, one of my favorite, like, discoveries early on in the game is, like, going through the undead burg and going through the... And then, like, you know, there's a there's a bonfire as soon as you enter the burg. And you will sit at the bonfire and it's like, well, there's a ladder there. I can't reach it. It's nothing. You'll eventually come... Go up a bridge and find out that through the side there's an area you can kick that ladder down and find a shortcut. And once you cross the bridge, you'll end up in a church. And in that church, there's an elevator that takes you right back down to the, to the firelink shrine where you began... And then you start finding, well, oh, well, okay, well, that's the one elevator. Where does the other elevator go? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until you start finding these just really just amazing just links. And I think that's also kind of where Dark Souls' second half kind of falls flat. Yeah, there aren't as many of those. Um, it introduces fast travel, which yeah. um, which is necessary because you are taken to another, a totally different part of the world. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't link with anything else. And yeah. Orlando is its own thing. And because of that, it never feels quite as cohesive and atmospheric. It's, it's also when that game starts to become a little unfair, just like mm-hmm. in, in the context of how, like, Dark Souls is tough. Dark Souls is tough because of uh, distinct, uh, distinct kind of mechanical rhythm of that game. Right. But, like, Anne Orlando is, like... Anne Orlando's just mean. Dark Souls yeah. is tough but fair. Like, one of my favorite examples to show people of how it teaches you how to play the game is that when you go through the Thieves' Town underneath the Undead Burg, you will end up fighting a bunch of dogs. And you'll very quickly learn that the best way to deal with dogs is to, is to use a thrusting attack. They take more damage from thrust than slash, and they always jump straight at you, which means it's hard to hit them with a vertical, but with a straight, you'll always get them as soon as they get to your head. Um, you will then... The, the boss you fight in that area is the Capra Demon, who is flanked by two really frustrating dogs. And by that point, you should understand that in order to deal with them and thus get to deal with the Capra Demon, you should be stabbing these dogs. Yeah, yeah, it's like... It's really, when you think about it, it's actually, it's a really old school way of design in a mm-hmm. sense that it is kind of like having you, introducing you to these mechanics solely, and then the boss is someone where you have to then use everything that you've learned to defeat this bad guy. Um, I don't think it necessarily holds true to that throughout the entire game, but it does do that quite a bit mm-hmm. um, throughout its progression. And because of that, again, like it feels like a world of continuity. Yeah, and, and, and one of the really special things, because dying is, dying has a penalty, but as you play the game, you begin to realize that that penalty is meaningless. Yeah. Souls aren't really that important. You can re- always get more. There's a really easy farm. There's a couple of really easy farming areas. And, and like at some point the leveling just becomes so intense that like mm-hmm. re- if you've only gotten if you only had like a couple hundred souls, who cares? Right. It's it, it, and so you start to realize that really the only actual resource that matters is your own personal experience and understanding of the world, which really encourages you to fling yourself into these crazy areas and try to find your way through them. I often find that sometimes the best strategy instead of dealing with enemies is running past all of them and trying to get to a new zone. I, I've been playing Dark Souls 2, and I think, um, and one of the things I found is, like, I can just run past enemies and find myself in a totally, like, way higher level area. Yeah, I didn't... 
again, like I like that sense of consequence, and that's that's I think what really makes um, Dark Souls stand out. It may not be a open world sandbox. You can't um, do side. You can't do a ton of side missions. There are side quests. Yeah. Um, but you, it doesn't really give you the opportunity to do anything. You really only have a sword, but like or whatever weapon you choose. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Because it is so tied together and there is this sense of narrative, even if the actual, again, the actual narrative is really thin, it's something that you, you're you able to build on your own merits. And a lot of the story, much like, um, much like kind of like in more emergent games, um, your narrative is kind of built up on your own experience. And, and I find that there's almost like this sliding scale of complexity, granularity, and emergency where you have a very simple game that is very vast, like a Grand Theft Auto, uh, will have a lot of emergence simply because it is so vast and so much can go can happen. Whereas once you go and then once you get to all the way granular in a very small game, you can have that same kind of um, of emergence. Yeah, and I think Dark Souls sits on that granular as does the next game on the primer, Shenmue. Yes. So Shenmue is actually Shenmue at its time was considered a bit of a revelation. I mean, when it came out, we're it was a month before we saw Grand Theft Auto three for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, and it was at the time hailed as like this this magical this kind of piece of perfect gaming that in hindsight look is kind of bad, but like it was one of those legends. Yeah, Shenmue. The thing about Shenmue that drives me crazy is for, like it is I, I believe not still, but one of the most expensive games of all time, if yeah. not like one of the top ten. And it is a game whose legacy was t- was ruined a month later. Yeah. It took exactly one month for somebody to come out and say, hey, we did it. Yeah, right? Shen- the thing with Shenmue, uh, that the, the, sort of the difference is that Grand Theft Auto 3 specifically is a huge, at least for the time, giant city. Yeah. Liberty City. You can go anywhere in Liberty City, do anything. Shenmue takes place in this tiny Japanese town, or rather Chinese town, I believe. Um, it, it was very much like Grand Theft Auto versus Shenmue is very much kind of like detail per square kilometer mm-hmm. of game space in that like Shenmue had way more detail in a given area that felt made the world feel way more real mm-hmm. while Grand Theft Auto had a much bigger world but there wasn't as much like individual character to each area. I, I, somebody once was comparing the games and I don't remember who but they said you can eat off of Grand Theft Auto 3. It is sterile. Shenmue, on the other hand, is grainy. There's so much going on in there. You will, you will be able, you can feel every particle of the sand if you try to shove a face full of in your, in your, in your mouth. And because of that, you have things like exploring Rio's backyard was something I remember doing as uh, when I when I played that game. It's just like, what is that noise? What is that noise? And it's like the donk, donk, donk. Like, what is that? I keep, I kept looking. It's like, oh, it's that weird Japanese like bamboo waterfall thing, and that's just there. Yeah, for no reason. It's it's kind of got like Shenmue has its flaws in that like it's really slow and it's hard to control, control and it's not very fun yeah. um, and it's limited. But but if we're talking about worlds, it had one of the most sophisticated worlds, especially for its time. Yes, it's an incredibly well realized world too, because like it's like it, it feels like a city. It feels like a little town. The people you can talk to are always they always have something interesting to say, and that's that was new outside of an RPG. It changes by the wet weather, changes over time and seasons and days. It's really again, it's like people change their schedules according to that. It almost took like it took sort of elements of games that had come before it. The you know the time elements of say Majora's Mask, the day-night cycles of kind of RPGs, the NPC style of like a Final Fantasy, the worlds of, of you know, the RPG town, and said, but what if it was all about the town? Yeah. Uh, and the weird martial arts you could do in there. 
Um, Fortunately, the martial arts weren't all that fun. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, that's the problem. You know, uh, what's funny about Shenmue is that it was originally conceived as an RPG spinoff of Virtua Fighter. I mean, and it kind of just the way the characters are designed looks it. Oh, definitely. And it's interesting that, like, that is sort of where he went with it of, like, you know, the martial arts tournament, they all have to be very close together. It'd be, I, I, I have to wonder what the alternate universe where Shenmue's uh, open world style is what took off in, like, Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, because that would be a very interesting way of doing it. I think, like, the only time... the. It, it took until we got something like GTA, um, GTA Four, mm-hmm. until we had that level of granularity and uh, detail in a GTA world. Right. I mean, and even Grand Theft Auto Four, I feel like isn't as detailed as Shenmue sometimes. No, I mean, like, because just Shenmue's world just had so much character mm-hmm. um, in the sound design and the way things were put together. Um, Grand Theft Auto games feel kind of random mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Like, yeah, I can bump into someone and they complain or something, but the complaints are always the same. The areas, I mean, the sounds I'm going to hear are really like, okay, am I near the strip club? Oh, okay, yeah. there's a strip club sound. And I think I, I mentioned this somewhere, I believe in the primer, maybe not. The larger your world gets, the more you're going to have to copy and paste. Yeah. You know, it just happens. Nobody has the resources to make a million unique buildings. You have, the, I, I remember like in Saints Row 3 and 4, when you go to like the suburb area, it's the same house like 50 times. They try to make that a joke in Saints Row 4 when right. they realize like, oh, this is actually a game that you're inside. Which is which is funny and cute, but it, at the same time, it's like, it, it definitely they makes... They still the... made that same house over and right. over again. It, it does kind of, and they reuse the entire world. Yeah. But um, the thing that gets me is like, no two buildings. Like we're looking at this one screenshot of Shenmue right here. This is the market. Nothing looks the same. Yeah, there's a storefront. We have two guys uh, sitting against each other, talking and eating. We have people in the market. It's like no two NPCs even share the same model. Yeah, and they even have like these really cool signs up on up on the wall. There's um, there's we can see up into the rafters. There's a clock up in the corner. Like it's just stuff that's interesting that. Um, at least, like, you get a sense of where you are. Yeah, you get a sense of there, there's a world. And, I, and and for that reason, I still think Shenmue 3 looks nicer than, like, any Grand Theft Auto until 4, even. Yeah. And yeah. it was a 2000 Dreamcast game that started its life on the Saturn. Yeah. Um, and then, well, I guess we'll end off with Far Cry 2. And um, speaking of emergence that we were talking about before, yeah. <laughs> Far Cry 2 is emergence of the video game. Oh, my God. Far Cry 2 is... Uh, early on in development, Far Cry 2 had a problem where... I mean, it was hinging on its fire effects. That was one of the key mm-hmm. points of a design. And early on, the main problem they were having was the fire was so contagious as just the gameplay. You could set a fire and destroy the entire world right. if you it weren't was, paying attention. It was, yeah, it was, it was the idea. It was like he blew up a barrel to fight an enemy, and that set, a, set the grass on fire, which got a hut which got the trees, which got a propane tank, which got a guy, which made him run into another propane tank and another propane tank and another guy, and the entire game map was a flame. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they eventually managed to, to sort that stuff out, but it was like, that was the level of emergence we were talking here. Mm-hmm. Just like, characters running into each other, um, weird, I mean, Far Cry 3 kind of went off the rails of this stuff too, but like, a lot of this stuff, you could kill off NPCs, you could, um, it really lets you do whatever you wanted. Right, it is, it is almost this ultimate sandbox. You're still limited to the tools you had in this in this safari, but like, yeah, get in the car, drive it across the world, and light everything on fire on your way. Yeah. Yeah, don't take any of your malaria medicine. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, Anthony Birch, who's a writer for Gearbox, uh, and formerly a writer for uh, Destructo and various other things, um, he had a GDC lecture on how he played Far Cry 2 as a permadeath run called the No Spoilers Permanent Run, where he played as if he, or, or, or rather with spoilers, where he, he as a character knew what was going to happen later on in the game. 
he is a player. And so the game has this buddy system, which is which is really great. And you have like a partner who these partners who follow you around. And eventually, spoilers, the buddies turn on you. And he knew this was gonna happen. And he's go he he and his buddy do this assault on a place. They light it all on fire, it all goes bad, they jump off a cliff, his partner lands in the river, but he misses the jump and lands in the you know, on the grass, breaks his leg, because you can have your legs broken in this game. That's the level of granularity here. And his buddy starts reviving him, and he realizes, like, oh, no, after this mission, that's when the buddies turn. And so the buddy finishes his leg, gives him some of his malaria medicine, turns around, and just shoots him in the head. <gasps> and... Oh, that's incredible. That's, like, the kind of... The kind of stories that can come out of how you play the game. Because, really, what actually had happened physically was everything went bad, jumped off a cliff, took fall damage, got revived, killed the guy who revived you. Yeah. But the story that actually happened there because of how the game sets itself and the way emergent gameplay works was like, that's a crazy story. Yeah. And they're doing this while everything's on fire and there's like jackals running across the across the, the, the safari. It's amazing. The best part about Far Cry three was a game it was a game you could really choose how to play. Like mm-hmm. very much it it could be this crazy everything is blowing up constantly everyone is dead um the animals are running free and doing half the work for you um but it could also be a very quiet subdued experience yeah depending it because it allowed that flexibility that was kind of that was where the open world nature really shone in mm-hmm. that game and it and it was really special especially cuz i believe it came out right after the first modern warfare or right after modern warfare 2 and it was like, it was kind of a show was like, hey, first-person shooters don't just have to be set-piece-to-set-piece crazy action. Yeah. It was one of the first games to attempt open world in a first-person context, and it really nailed it the first time out, I think. Yeah, yeah. The I just wish that the game was... Because of that, it has a problem with, like, characters are really interchangeable at times. Mm-hmm. Because you kill an NPC, and so they still need the story to progress to so someone else who's basically exactly the same, just right. shows up and finishes off the mission. And because of that, it did feel like... There was um, like this somehow this infinite supply of people you could talk to, um, but uh, at the same time, it's like Far Cry Two and later on Far Cry Three, which had unfortunately a more disgusting story the, later on. But the uh, mm-hmm. Far Cry Two is a, if you're going to go for a good cohesive um, play how you want experience, I mean that's a pretty damn good game. And it's like five dollars now. It's it's it, Far Cry Two is a really special game. Yeah. Um, and I'm sad we don't see more of it because, I mean, Clint Hawking left Ubisoft, and so we probably won't ever see anything like it again. Uh, what was the other thing about this game? That uh, It's like it's small. Like, it's yeah. not that it's The world is very small, and that allows it to have that sort of level of detail. Yeah. So I guess what we're going, what we've kind of concluded with all of these is like, and you've mentioned this in your, your op-ed, is that like big worlds aren't really all that interesting. No, big, I mean, a big world can be interesting, but if your focus is on just getting bigger and bigger, then you're going to get blander and blander. Yeah, and the smaller your world is, and the more you let me explore that small, detailed world, and not too small, of course, but something like a Dark Souls or a Far Cry, which have these very Far Cry Two, which have these close, interconnected worlds, you really get to know it intimately and are more interested and invested. I feel like that's the point of an open world at the end of the day to make me invested in a world rather than the, the characters and the, or the gameplay mechanics. And if you want me to be invested in the world, I've never been invested in Saints Row 4's world. And I've played a lot of Saints Row 4, but it's, that, that city's enormous. I don't know anything about the city. I'm really invested in my crazy superpowers, uh, but I'm running across the city at the speed of sound, and I'm not seeing anything. I don't care about it. It's huge. It's copy-pasted. There's, like, five islands. I don't know anything about it. And I feel like if you really want to make me invested in a world, I should be intimately familiar with it. Um, I mean, some honorable mentions for this list on that same account include Shadow of the Colossus, 
which has a very small world that you really get to know as you kind of run across its emptiness. Uh, Wind Waker is not a small world at all, but is also kind of a boring world in its in its strangeness and was almost here, uh, but left off for the sake of it being not fitting in the theme of small worlds. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, obviously, I mean, Grand Theft Auto 4 and Saints Row are the, you know, big daddies of open world right now, but... I, I almost Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed going open world was such a strange choice for them. Yeah. And it made sense in the context, but boy, did it not work in the long run. And have you seen Assassin's Creed 4's map? It's huge, and it's like just it's there's nothing on it. No, it's enormous, and it's all water. And we all complained about it in Wind Waker, and nobody's complaining now. I'm so <laughs> mad because I liked Wind Waker, and you all like Assassin's Creed 4. <sighs> Anyway, that's all we have time for to talk about open worlds today. That I hope you enjoyed. Um, again, you can catch this. Uh, we have a whole primer on our website, builttoplay.ca. Um, we'll have more content from yes. open worlds throughout the yeah, month. Yeah, you can find right now, as you said, the primer, an open world about how uh, the problem with big open worlds. Uh, store uh, article talking about why, uh, kind of ex- exploring and examining what's up with linearity and why op- where open-endedness works and where linearity doesn't. And um, coming up, after after we record this, there should be a Dark Souls 2 diary about its open world and how I feel about its open world mechanics. And kind of closing off on maybe, not sure where it's ending yet, but I think about the, uh, the maybe realism of open worlds and kind of living within one. All right. All right. We'll look forward to seeing that stuff all on the site. Hey, thanks for listening. Thank you so much. <laughs>